The holidays are right around the corner, and have you thought of that perfect gift for your loved ones? What do you get someone who has everything? Well, why not a custom piece of jewelry from my friend Kevin Blumenkamp? Kevin has been handcrafting metal for over 20 years and will be happy to work with you on a one-of-a-kind design. Give Kevin a call at 314-346-6498. See what he can do for you. Good health is one of the most valuable attributes we can possess. Alan Carter speaks about herbal tinctures and how they can help our body fight viruses and bacteria. Longtime friend and sponsor of the show, Dr. Mark Holland, agrees that what we put into our body is as important as the exercise that we partake in and, most importantly, stretching. Keeping limber, flexibility is really the key to being youthful. Proper spine alignment is important as well, and there are many choices that one has in a chiropractor these days. Over 87% of his new patients are referrals, which speaks great volumes for the care and customer service. If you need an adjustment or have an accident which has caused trauma to your spine, then Dr. Holland and his colleagues are the right choice for you. Find Dr. Holland online at mystlouischiropractor.com or at chiroandrehab.com. So my friend Alan speaks about mindfulness and, uh, and awareness, and he's very aware, very mindful, very spiritual guy. New sponsor and, and good friend of the show, Ben Sturgill, is also very mindful, very aware, and he puts this in his music. He creates music from the heart, from the soul, that, that takes you to a spiritual place. Ben has been creating music for a number of years and is ultra-talented. He's currently working on new songs that really focus on things that are going on in the world and how we can be our true selves. You can find more about Ben on his website, bensturgill.com. Sign up for the mailing list. Also, currently, he is partaking in a contest with Guitar Center, looking to get an appearance on the Jimmy Kimmel Show. That's one of, that's a top prize, so he can use your help. Go to his Facebook page, Ben Sturgill Music, and through that, you can find the link to the Guitar Center contest. Go there, share, share the song, share the channel. Uh, if you want, sign up and uh, comment on his songs. What do you feel? How do they speak to you? Ben is a prolific artist and uh, just an amazing, amazing talent. Find out more about him and just really infuse your soul with the great music and the great energy that he is putting out. My friend Alan Carter is just one of the most amazing people I know. Very diverse in his interest, very diverse in his talents. He started studying martial arts at a young age and has used that to keep himself balanced and be very mindful. He's been a police officer for a number of years, has retired from the police force, and one of his main hobbies has been herbal tinctures. You get many properties of healing that is in a food form. You know, he has one recipe he calls the Three Amigos, which hopefully I'm not giving away his secrets, but, uh, you know, this is one that he makes with fresh garlic, habanero pepper, and ginger root, and it's in a, a grain alcohol. Put some of this in water or take a few drops on the tongue, and it really just increases the heat in your body. It, uh, you know, gets gets it going, so it starts burning out what's what's in there and, uh, and what's going to cause that cold. So it's just amazing. Um, amazing man. He's studied herbal tinctures, uh, started learning that back in Hawaii. He'll talk about that in the interview. And, and just talks about a lot of things, how how medicine will take one key attribute from these herbs when there's others that work in conjunction that really help remedy many things. Uh, one of the other things he had talked about is how 
antibiotics are affecting children. So the antibiotics in food and how 14-year-old girls in the United States uh, are, are nothing, you know, look more mature than, for instance, 14-year-old girls in Europe. So it's just it's just crazy how in our country, in the United States, how just the different chemicals and the antibiotics and everything are causing children to to progress at an earlier age, to hit puberty at an earlier age. And it's, it's really scary. You know, he talks a little bit about police actions. And, you know, he's a guy that has, uh, you know, we see all, all these instances where police are shooting. It's it's just, you know, the reaction. It's uh, shoot first and ask questions later. And his martial arts background is something that kept him calm. And he was able to assess the situation. And he was just an amazing public servant. We talk a little bit about his experience in Kosovo with the uh, United Nations and how the Belgians played a trick on him. So, you know, you want to hear about that because it's pretty interesting and it's a, f- a funny story. So we recorded this back in April and a lot has been happening since then. You know, I've been pretty busy and, uh, you know, there's a lot of crazy things going on with all the shootings and the, the world is just changing. And, you know, a lot of things that when you're having an interview, you you record a great episode and then you're breaking down the equipment and the conversation continues and you just miss some great stuff. But I think you're going to enjoy this one. Alan is just a, a cool guy and I'm proud to bring uh, bring him to you to let you learn a little bit more about him. And he's just someone that you'll, you'll definitely want to meet. So if you ever had the chance to meet him in person and have a conver- conversation with him yourself, then uh, do so because you will not be disappointed. Here he is. My good friend, Alan Carter. We spent the better part of the day working, creating a tincture. So I've been reading a lot about inflammation and how bad it is and how that's just something, I guess you could say, plagues our society. So you helped me, uh, you guided me to create a, uh, an anti-inflammatory tincture. When when did you first get involved in tinctures? Well, initially, growing up in Hawaii, I was first attracted to Chinese herbs in the Honolulu uh, Chinatown and that's only because at that point in time as a 16 17 year old kid I started to do martial arts well in the Chinese uh, systems you use a particular type of herb for healing uh, a formula called Ditta Jia which means like you know hit and bruised wine so I would go into the Chinatown herb shops and talk to the uh, the older Chinese guys about different things and different herbs for healing. And it wasn't until I moved back to St. Louis when I was 24 years old that I started exploring uh, Western herbology and uh, was able to find out that apparently it had been in my family with my grandfather for generations. So at that point in time, I started to explore that which led me to uh, become a student of a lady by the name of Victoria Fortner, uh, who was uh, a Shawnee, and she's since passed away, unfortunately. But uh, I became uh, Victoria's protege, and uh, I stayed her, with her to the very end. And every month we'd get together and we'd talk about different herbs, the properties of them, and... Um, We'd work out different formulas, and I would throw things past her, let her try out my stuff and critique me. And we'd go out into the into the woods, take a woods walk, 
and we would pick herbs. And so uh, she was my really my primary herb teacher at that time. So since then, I've gone on my own and have uh, started to do my own research and my own formulations, so to speak. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing with those formulations, just the chemistry that's involved with these natural elements, in essence, food, because that's one thing you told me early on. Like, yeah, you can take, and granted, certain ones, uh, you can't, but most of them, garlic, the, the habanero, mm-hmm. uh, most of it you, you've told me it's just food. So you can pretty much take as much as you want, and it's you know it's not going to do anything to you. Yeah, I would say that um, most herbs are, are relatively safe to take. Uh, you're going to, you know, at, at, at worst, when you take too much of an herb or, or so, you would probably either, you know, make you throw up or have an upset stomach or whatever. But, you know, you shouldn't worry about it. I get a kick out of that when you buy a uh, bottle of tincture at a health food store, it'll say take only 15 to 30 drops twice a day. And people get all weirded out about that. But then again, they'll sit down, and drink a six pack of beer and eat half of a pizza and not think anything about it. So it's, it's, it's kind of funny to witness. But herbs are, are in, my, in my opinion, pretty safe. And it's been around for a long time. I actually did a paper on herbology uh, years ago in college, and it had to do with uh, herbology and natural healing versus uh, the, the the early 1900s when we became more, I don't know, uh, what's the best way to say it? We became industrialized because all, all the old-time herbalists, all the old-time pharmacists, they all pretty much knew how to use uh, tincture and how to make herbal medicines. In fact, they used to have people that uh, were like called root diggers and they would go out into the field and bring roots to these pharmacists or to these um, rural doctors to make tinctures out. So it's been around for a long time and a lot of countries throughout the world, even this day, still rely heavily on herbal medicine. So it wasn't so much that with the advent of the the 1900s and the, the industrial age, that herbs became obsolete. It's just that you can make a, a bigger profit by learning how to synthesize uh, different things. And white willow bark would be the probably the primary one because you know that's like nature's aspirin. But once you figure out you can make a lot of money by making aspirin tablets and put them out on the market, uh, it was a much easier way of doing it. So it was, it was back in the days when people relied on herbal medicine. That's all they had. Look at indigenous people. They didn't have anything else. So they knew about it. They used it. They lived it. They learned what was around them. And every country has uh, throughout the world has done that. So even to this day, though, a lot of indigenous people throughout the world still use herbology as their primary means of, uh, uh, of medicine. You find that... Nowadays, we're losing rainforest and, and, you know, a lot of land. We're losing, there's animals that are endangered species. Mm-hmm. Is this something that's happening with certain herbs as well? Or is it something that we we have enough cultivators in different areas that, that we still have the primary ones? Is, is there any danger of losing some of the key ones? Well, uh, there, there's one herb that comes to mind, and it's called golden seal. And it's been overpicked and over harvested and so of course that drives the prices up um 
Another one would be ginseng, wild ginseng that grows up in uh, the Appalachians and the Blue Ridge Mountains. And you actually have people that uh, uh, are ginseng diggers, and that's what they do, and that's how they that's how they su- sustain themselves, whether we're talking about West Virginia or we're talking about Kentucky. But, um, um, yeah, it can get overpicked, overharvested, so you have to be a little careful about that. I think the biggest thing is that... Uh, uh, it's it's a lost art or lost science where people are not practicing herb, herbology like they used to because it used to be passed down from your your uh, your elders uh, even in Western civilization whether they're European or Eastern European um, that a lot of this knowledge is just dying out because it's so much easier to just go to the drugstore, go to Walgreens or CVS and just buy something. So I think it's good to maintain that kind of information because you just never know when you need it or not. Here again, I'll say that it wasn't uh, uh, when modern medicine came around, it wasn't because herbology didn't work. It's just it had to do with money and production. Yeah, it seems like a lot of things are going that way if you yeah. can do it a, a lot quicker and easier right. like as a consumer or sure and money is always yeah. a big part of the the equation too yeah but yeah. what i mean looking at most people don't know so like if you get the the white birch bark yeah so something like that it's like well I, i'm getting this willow, white willow or white willow yeah. bark mm-hmm. okay. so i'm getting that oh i can just take an aspirin right. why should i mess with this what, what's i guess what, what are the extra benefits of having something that is is more natural and not the synthetic version well you know nature's got buffers that are built in around different herbs in other words it's not like one single uh, compound or one single chemical substance within that particular plant or that root or that bark and it's it's protected my herb teachers always told me that uh, uh, herbs usually have three to five different properties, medicinal properties to them. Um, A a real good uh, way to explain this is like garlic. If you take garlic uh, for being an antiviral, um, it's very interesting because the bad guys can't figure out what garlic's all about because there's so many components to garlic in itself fighting uh, viruses that they are confused by and they just it's like it's too many they can't go up Mm -hmm. against it and beat it and that's why garlic is so good but if you take a a, an herbal substance and you change it into a chemical thing where it only has one or two compounds then the viruses and the bacteria can go yeah we can take you we can we we can overcome you and so um it's it's very interesting how nature you know does that because it protects what it has and that's interesting. And one big thing right now that you hear a lot about is just the overuse of antibiotics. And not so much. I mean, one, we have the overprescription because it's every little sniffle. It seems like I hear someone say, oh, I'm dealing with a cold or whatnot, but I've got a pack." And you're just mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, did you, how long have you had this cold? Mm-hmm. In certain situations, but more so just the antibiotics that are being pumped into livestock as far as... Mm-hmm as far as our food's concerned. And I heard an interesting tidbit. I don't know if you're familiar with this. And it was, you know, I've always thought, yeah, it's to 
keep that animal from from illness and whatnot but uh, apparently back in the day it just it's a way to fatten them up a lot quicker Mm -hmm. and i had no idea so that was news to me that i heard a few days ago well you know it's interesting ken when penicillin first came about uh the early uh, proponents of penicillin they kind of forewarned about that kind of thing going going awry they said, listen, just use penicillin for something serious, something that's life-threatening. Don't be, you know, don't be indiscriminate with it. Well, when the food industry realized they could start introducing these uh, uh, penicillin into the, into, the, into the food chain, that's where it became, well, it just kind of got out of control. So even your water, uh, of course, your food we know in your water, You've got all these antibiotics in there that are you're just getting saturated with. And so when the bad guys come visit you, you know, the viruses and the bacteria, uh, the viruses have a way to communicate. A lot of people don't know that, but they, they see what they're up against and they communicate with each other. And they say, hey, we got to figure out a new game plan, how to beat this guy. And so it really is a medical race. To keep uh, to keep ahead of them because everything breaks off, everything mutates, and modern medicine is, is going crazy trying to figure out what to do about it. And so there's there's where the lies the problem. So if you if it, it's sort of like if you look at um, the children in this country, uh, why are twelve and thirteen year old girls looking like young mature women? that were back in the 1940s and 50s. And that's because of all the uh, the chemicals that are in our food chain and our and everything we have. Um, I had an experience one time when I went to a place called Tarquinia in Italy, and uh, I ran across a couple of 12- and 13-year-old girls, and they were reminiscent of the way 12- and 13-year-old girls in this country used to look like. But the chemical situation is absolutely destroying it. It's just terrible. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, really scary. Yeah, and I lived in Bosnia from uh, for about a year after the war. And uh, an interesting note about all this stuff is that I wasn't uh, I wasn't around any kind of a fast food or fast anything, so I had to live pretty much off the land. I wasn't in the military; I was a UN policeman. <coughs> Excuse me. So I used to eat like the the locals did. Well, they didn't have their foods, uh, their goats and their pigs and their chickens. None of that stuff was filled with antibiotics or any kind of medicinal anything because, they, of course, they didn't have the, the money or the means to do that. And subsequently, everybody got healthier by living off of that kind of food, more natural and closer to the earth. Uh, when you come back to the United States, you're back into a chemical-laden environment and you just can't escape it because it's in everything. Yeah, it's terrible. Now, how did you go about so your time in Bosnia? Yeah, uh, that was a police situation. How how did that come about? Was that something that you were sought out for, or that uh, you applied for? Yeah, in um, in nineteen nineteen ninety five, at the end of ninety five or ninety six, in ninety five the war had come to an end in in Yugoslavia. Um, and whether it would be in Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, Slovenia, the war uh, had come to an end, and through the Dayton Peace Accord, 
and all warring parties signed off on that. So even though there were UN military during the war over there, the UN went to have a police force, an international police force, to go all throughout the, the former Yugoslavia and to work with the local police, whether it would be Serbs, Croats, or the, the Bosniaks, uh, the Bosnian Muslims. And they want them to work in conjunction with them so they can monitor uh, the situation there, report back to the UN in New York to make a determination of whether things are starting to go the right direction, uh, to make sure that the police were actually doing police work and that uh, from an eth uh, uh, not only an ethnic point of view, but make sure that you know no criminal activities were taking place. Because unfortunately, when the war ended, uh, a lot of paramilitaries and people who were not really nice guys, they kind of uh, crept into the ranks of the police force to give the uh, perception that they were good guys because they were police officers. So our job was to kind of keep an eye on things and make sure that people were actually doing what they're supposed to do, especially as police officers. So uh, the State Department uh, uh, put out a notice uh, to all the police departments throughout the country that we need to come up with 200 American police officers. So I have about three to 5,000 applicants, 200 were selected. So I retired in 1996 as a lieutenant with the police department and I joined the ranks of the, the UN, the American contingent and was sent over to Bosnia. Interesting. And, and so when you went over, how, how, so you retired as a lieutenant, how long were you a police officer in the States at that point? Uh, I started police work in 1973, so this is 1996, so I'll let you do the math for me on that <laughs> one. So I've, I've been a police officer for, for quite a yeah, while. Yeah, so there was about 20 years at that point. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. 23 years. Right. And so you, you go over there, and what what is it? I mean, it's night and day. You're going to a war-torn right. country from something, of course, the United States being more developed. Um, at that time, you were you were in the county? You were in... Ellisville at that point? Yes, correct. Uh -huh. Okay, so you're in an area that's right. more suburban. Right. Um, what was what was your thought when you entered that area and, and <laughs> saw what was going on? What was going through your mind? Well, I can tell you that every police officer, the ones from New York, L.A., um, and also the foreign police officers coming in from uh, all over the world, whether it would be Lithuania or Ireland or... Uh, well, you just name it, you know, both Eastern and Western countries. We all entered into a, a town called Vukovar. And Vukovar was the, the first big city that was hit during the war. Uh, Milosevic, Slobodan Milosevic, sent his paramilitaries and uh, uh, army across the Danube. And they come into Vukovar and kind of lay siege to it for about three months. And thousands of people were were just absolutely, you know, raped, tortured, executed. It was uh, it was a real bloodbath. And when we entered Vukovar, it was absolutely uh, insane because almost every house, every building had bullet holes and, and things were, roofs were blown up. The roads were all screwed up. Uh, everything was shelled. And so if, if you're thinking in terms of what scorched earth looked like, well, we were up in close and saw it so it was a shock to all of us even guys who you know were coming from all these other countries we go wow look at this unbelievable 
So it was a shock to our system because it's like a grim reality of what war looks like up close. And one thing you were you telling me over the years, hearing different stories, uh, the the Belgians, there was a lot of Belgians there, correct? Correct. And uh, wasn't there an instance when they had, uh, was it like an indoctrination thing or was it like, <laughs> hey, have, you know, <laughs> take a drink of this? What, what were they? Because they enjoyed their... Oh yeah, their liquor, correct? Oh my God! Well, <laughs> I, I I worked in conjunction with um, with a company of uh, Belgium soldiers, and uh, if, if people don't know, you, you've got basically two groups of Belgians. You have the ones that speak; uh, it's a kind of a guttural uh, language. It's uh, it sounds like German and Dutch mixed together, and then you have the French speaking Belgians. Well, they would come in, do a three-month uh, uh, tour, then rotate out. So you this have, is the French. The, this, or, this is the Belgians. Okay, gotcha. So um, I mean, but the the uh, French-speaking Belgians or the the more guttural German. The the, one, the ones who got me uh, uh, pulled a fast one were the French-speaking. Okay, gotcha. Belgians. So they they had inhabited a, a small Serbian army compound, and we worked uh, uh, the UN police department. We worked directly across the street from them. So, you know, they were European, Western European, and we could eat with them, and, and you know, we became friends, whatever. So on the last day that they were there, they were shipping out to go back home to Belgium. They invite me over as the uh, sole guest, their, their American guest to come over. <laughs> well, we start off, you know, with drinking wine, and they're French Belgians, you know, they're Belgiques, so we're drinking wine, and we're, we're getting quite a bit of wine, and we're singing army songs, and we're starting to get to the point where we're intoxicated enough to start taking pieces of our respective uniforms off and trading and training pocket knives and all this stuff and berets. Well, towards the end of the evening, when we're pretty much, you know, intoxicated, and I didn't think there was that many levels of intoxication, but... After experiencing all of that, there, there certainly is. They uh, they wanted to um, uh, to honor me, so they bring me up and they all stand at attention with something like out of a French Foreign Legion movie, like Beau Jess, and uh, it was an old uh, plastered walls and very dingy, kind of a rundown old old you know barracks. So they brought me up and they uh, they. They went through a ceremony where they took the Belgian flag off the wall. They folded it up, and then they uh, they presented it to me as a gift, a going away gift. And so all the young soldiers, you know, they're all shouting in French and everything. Well, one of the soldiers brings me up a cup, a reasonably large cup, and it had alcohol in it. But I I didn't know what it was. We'd been drinking pretty hard by then, so they told me I had to drink it all down. So I did. Well. It was the local plum brandy, which is either called Rakia or Slivovitz, whichever ever you want to pronounce it. And unbeknownst to me, um, they were all standing on top of the table, stomping their feet to hear again. Looked like something of a French Foreign Legion movie. So I drank it all down, you know, because they wanted me to. So they all <laughs> saluted me and all this stuff. So after that, we said our goodbyes. And the sergeant, Alex, he's starting to walk me out. To go across the street because I was on duty. I was the afternoon uh, commander in charge. So we're walking out, and he goes, Alan, are you okay now? When we move out of the compound, you got to remember there's Constantine barbed wire all over the place, and 
Hopefully I didn't stagger too much. But he says, you okay? And I go, uh, what do you mean, Alex? He goes, oh, they pulled a fast one on you. They gave you they gave you a whole cup full of Slivovitz. And I go, oh, no. So on top of the wine, it was a mess. I was able to cross the road. I get over to the UN Serbian police station. I sit on the steps. My relief guy comes in, an American guy from Louisville. And he goes, uh, you okay? And I go, no. He goes, can you walk? And I go, no, I don't think I can talk either. He goes, who's going to drive all the uh, all your, your team members back to their respective villages? And I remember this is about 11 o'clock at night. And I looked at him and I go, Tom, I go, I can't drive. I can't walk. I can't do anything. So he goes, let me take you uh, over to our container across the road and let you, uh, we'll put you in there. So he kind of half dragged me over there and, uh, during the course of the entire evening, all I remember was crawling out of my hands and knees and throwing up. They find me the next morning with the Belgium Army, uh, the, the, the Belgium flag that the, the soldiers <laughs> gave me, and I used it as a blanket, and I had a Belgium beret tucked over my head, and I was uh, laying on the floor, kind of comatose. So one of the Serbian interpreters comes in, his name was Sasha, and he goes, Alan, are you alive? And typical Serbian manner, he gives me a little short kick in the ribs. And I go, no, I'm not. He goes, you want me to drive you back to your accommodation? I go, yeah, Sasha, you're better. So he had to physically pick me up. So uh, if anybody wants to know what Slivovets or Rocky is all about, uh, give me a holler and I'll tell you exactly what's <laughs> I've been there and done that. So very multi multicultural you were with the oh. uh, with Belgian flag. And oh, <laughs> my God, yeah. I was a, I was a stereotypical UN you know, misfit, you know, American, American police officer with a Belgian flag as a blanket and a, a Belgian beret tucked over my eyes. <laughs> so gr growing up in Hawaii, yep. going to Serbia, did a lot of dealings before that experience, did you have other multicultural dealings where you, you had a lot of friends from other places? Uh, yeah. How was it in Hawaii? What kind of people, what, what years were you in Hawaii? Um, I'm trying to think exactly. Um, so up until your it, it was it was in the '60s. Okay. It, yeah. So I left Hawaii back in 19. The, the the when I when I first left there was in 1966. No, I correct that 1967. So I finished off high school there. I I moved from California to Hawaii, and so uh, my dad was in the Navy. And we go to Hawaii. And the interesting about part about Hawaii, for those who have never been there, it's a very mixed ethnic group of people. Primarily uh, Asian, Asian and Polynesian. Um, so a lot of different cultures mixing it up. And sometimes things worked well and sometimes they didn't. The high school I went to was, uh, I was a minority. And, and unfortunately, I got, I was a skinny white kid, 16 years old. And I used to have the local kids want to fight me all the time. And not because of anything I did or said, it's just because I was white. So I had a sense of the prejudice that, uh, that is there that a lot of Westerners or a lot of people who go to Hawaii don't see because they're going to Waikiki. And so they're seeing all the nice things about Hawaii. 
But if you live there, you know, you see a different side, just like you would anyplace else. It's like you come visit the Arch or you go to Bush Stadium and you're from out of town. You see different aspects. Well, so anyway, that uh, that kind of uh, spurred me on to learn martial arts because I was only about 150 pounds and white. And, uh, you know, I had, to, I, I, I had to deal with some rough people. There, there is prejudice there. There's a hierarchy there, too. Uh, it's like a pecking order, you know, the, the Caucasians and the Japanese are kind of like at the top and then the Chinese and then the Filipinos and then the Samoans and Hawaiians. And that's pretty much how it went. Interesting. And then when you were, when you were in Bosnia, you mm-hmm. said, because we were talking about the, uh, the herb kava, mm-hmm. which is a relaxing herb. And you right. had said that you had... Did you learn about that with with the gentleman that you had met? That did they introduce you to, or did you know about Kava before that? I, I, I had I had uh, uh, made Kava tinctures and knew about Kava here, um, in in the St. Louis area. Okay, and so I was using Kava and I knew about it, but when I went over there, uh, I had it with my Fiji colleagues uh, on the police force, and they showed me the whole ceremony. And I remember it was kind of a strange event. It was like they, the, the Fiji guys, there's four of them, and they rented a, a Serbian house in this village down the street from where I was at. And they invited me over, and we did a kava ceremony, and they made me an honorary Fijian. So they brought, uh, they brought some Fiji music. They present me with my own Fiji sarong, and then they brought out the kava root and with the water and then the coconut shells. We pass it uh, around to each other, and we sang, and the music would play. And they made me an honorary Fiji Islander. Uh, uh, so I do know about kava firsthand because it was about 2 o'clock in the morning when the ceremony was over. And kava kind of makes you a little bit dopey. <laughs> and I'm, I'm leaving. It's in the dead of winter. And I'm, I'm leaving this cold Serbian uh, house going down the street, kind of like going... I'm in the dark. I'm kind of by myself. A little scary. And I'm thinking, gosh, these houses all look alike. Which one do I live at? <laughs> so I'm wandering around in the dark for a while, but I uh, finally found it. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was my true uh, introduction to kava in a traditional way. Yeah, it was pr- pretty amazing. I'm looking forward to some point making some because oh, uh, yeah. the, the, what we bought at Whole Foods was great. So it's, yeah, I want to... Have, have a nice stock of that. Yeah, Absolutely. Good stuff. And like I told you uh, earlier that in uh, Fiji, they have, uh, you go to a kava hut where you can sit down. The guy's sort of like a, a guidance counselor, a psychiatrist, and uh, he he will, you, you will resolve your issues with either a family member or a neighbor, and you talk it out, and you drink kava, and you chill out, and he talks to you, and kind of a indigenous way of having your own therapist right there and they use it they use the kava and when they're drinking the kava there it's more more like a tea right yeah more like a tea okay right so they dig up the root they dig up the plant and uh then they they dry it and they bring it into a powder and then they uh put it in a a cloth bag and then make a tea out of a big bulb but yeah uh, that's what they do They, they they that's what they do in fiji they they have Kaaba huts, so you go for personal conflict and resolutions. You go see your Fiji therapist, so to speak. That sounds Smart. interesting. Yeah. 
Very cool. So after, <laughs> so you retired to go to Bosnia, yeah. and then when you came back to St. Louis, mm-hmm. did you, uh, I guess, be uh, reinstated? Did you unretire? How did you? Did you come back into the police force when you came yeah, back? Yeah, I didn't initially want to go back because I, I pretty much said, hey, you know, that was enough. But uh, I tried to look for some other missions. There was one going into Haiti at the time, a UN police mission, but you had to speak, I think, at least. I think it was like 50, 50 French words. But um, anyway, I, 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 and I couldn't do that. I didn't know the French, so that didn't work out. And I looked into other, a couple other government things and didn't pan out in the long run. So the police department kind of uh, knocked on my door and said, hey, you want to come back and work part-time? I go, no, not really. So after about the second or third time, I go, and this is after three months of trying to transition from coming back home and trying to find something to do. And so I said, yeah, I'll do that. So eventually I was working so much part-time, they told me to come back on full-time. And then um, that's, that's that's where I stayed. So from 1997 to my retirement in 2014, I finished off my career there. And then, so, so looking at that, and one thing we've talked about, and one thing that we see in this day and age is a lot of police scrutiny. And of mm-hmm. course, knowing you, I know how, how great of a person you are mm-hmm. and the type of character and the police officer you were. And just like a lot of my other friends are great, but it seems like you get these situations which, which aren't so great and it kind of puts a black eye on everybody. And, and I, I think rightful, well, not putting the black eye on right. everybody, but I, I think it's something that we it has to get out there so that the situation can improve. Do you, is this an issue with training? Is it uh, militariz- militarization of the police force? What I mean, what do you think? What's your feelings on why we're dealing with the, all these situations these days? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's sort of a conglomerate of uh, many different factors. Well, first of all, I would, I would be quick to tell you that when I was a policeman in 1973, that the level of violence in this country was nowhere what is at this day and age. Um, for whatever reason, whether it be social, economic, or uh, I don't know, life changes, and you see different generations come up, um, this is, these are more violent times than I've ever seen. And I think people don't have a sense of purpose with themselves. They don't, they don't have an identity, and uh, it's just... People don't care. They're just they're sort of like lost souls. Um, is it is it because there's there's no hope that maybe why care because there's nothing my situation's not going to change? Yeah, hopelessness will will lead uh, you down that path. You know, when you think that uh, it doesn't make any difference what you do or what you don't do, um, you, you just you become fearless. And you used to see those stickers on the back of people's cars. It says fearless. It's because they just. They don't care. They they they've lost something, and uh, we don't have heroes to look up for anymore. I remember cases where I'd have a twelve or thirteen year old kid, and I would tell them, you know, if uh, you know you you keep it up, you're going to be put in in juvenile uh, detention and locked up, and you won't be able to have McDonald's. You won't be able to go to the show, and they would look at me like a a fish, and they'd go. I don't care. I don't care what you do. And so that's kind of sad because mm-hmm. that means when you have that kind of attitude, uh, anything's game, anything's open. So I don't know. It's it's, it's just the, the violence is just unbelievable. 
Um, so where's it coming from? I really, I don't think you could put your finger on one single thing. Uh, I think, I think it's a combination of many things. And with the police department, um, I don't know. I mean, have policemen always shot people? Well, yeah, of course they have. But, uh, is it more prevalent now? And I think so too, because of the fact that, you know, there's a fear factor involved there because so many people have a tendency to pull a gun on you faster than they used to. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, people didn't pull guns on each other like they do now. People don't care. They don't care about the repercussions of their action. So I think what you do, you've got a, you got a situation here where, you, <clears throat> excuse me, you got policemen out there they're apprehensive about the people we're dealing with. And people know now at this day and age uh, that policemen get shot either on a weekly basis and sometimes on a daily basis. And so I think that puts people on a higher level of anxiety. And I think it's, it's, it's a two-way street, you know. And you have people that are desperate and they, they shoot you. Or in a lot of cases with gangs, they shoot you because it's an initiation process. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're, if you're on the streets of St. Louis, you got 13, 14-year-old kids carrying pistols, you know? And there's, there's a, that, that whole culture of violence has just getting, I don't know, why, more widespread than another. You know, and then one can sit back and go, well, a lot of the young police officers you see coming into the departments these days are coming out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And so they've been exposed to a lot of violence and you know, maybe they, they themselves have killed some people. I don't know. And I'm sure that's the case. But we don't know how much stress and how much uh, uh, things have affected them being in a war zone because a war zone does change you. So you couple that with all the different things that we've got going on. People don't have certainty about how their lives are going to go. They don't, they don't really get a sense of what their future is going to look like. And when people get hopeless... And they, they just uh, have a tendency to do things they shouldn't do. You know, the whole thing, though, with, you know, and I would tell young policemen, and I had and I had a scenario where they, two of these police officers had a situation, uh, real good guys, and they had somebody that was uh, trying to ram them with a car. And they said, we restrained ourselves and we didn't fire. Uh, a lot of people don't know that police can legally shoot at a fleeing felon, especially if they think that someone's life is going to be in jeopardy if they don't put a stop to them. Uh, so you've got this kind of large umbrella as far as police having discretion when they can shoot and when they can. But uh, going back to my two guys, they were smart because uh, with the Michael Brown shooting, they says, wow because uh, we thought this over real quick within a millisecond because we don't want to shoot this person coming at us with a car. Could we have done that? Because uh, uh, a car is a weapon, and, and it's been judged that you know throughout the years as far as someone trying to run over a policeman, he has the legal right to protect himself, he shoots him, uh, trying to run him down, trying to kill him. So, And there's been many shootings like that. But thank God... My guys had a lot of good common sense on their on their on their shoulders, and they remembered the Michael Brown thing. They go, no, no, I'm not going to do it. So I think things have changed. Has been twisted a little bit. Um, 
Uh, very sad. I don't know. It's not like the police departments are encouraging people to go out and and uh, kill anybody. It's just, I, I think it's really, it's hard to put your finger on why it's gotten the level has escalated to this, this point where people are shooting everybody. I don't know. I mean, you're getting it from both sides. You're getting it from bad guys. People who are shooting at police officers on a traffic stop who have never done this 20, 30, 40 years ago is unheard of. Um, people don't get into fist fights like they used to. They pull a gun on you and they shoot you. Road rage. You know, if, if you think about when you were growing up, who thought of anything about road rage? I don't remember growing up as a teenager and thinking, road rage? What is that? It just, it, you know, it didn't happen. Stop and think about why we have these uh, school resource officers in all the, the high schools now. So we have to put policemen? We have to put policemen inside our schools? Who would have ever thought that? But you got kids coming to school with with uh, with guns, you know. So it's probably a it's probably a combination of many factors that has brought us up to where we're at now. And when you look at now, the, one of the big talks is having the body cameras. Mm-hmm. You see in in the in the patrol cars, you have the cameras. And I mean, what what is your thought as far as having that? Because if 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 in the in the situation of an officer doing his job, like I saw a video. Um, with the John Case, it's the governor of Ohio, mm-hmm. and there was some talk about how mm-hmm. the police did him wrong and this and that. Mm-hmm. And then the video came out, and that police officer was completely polite, this and that, mm-hmm. but he cited him because he, I don't know if it was improper lane. Yeah. I don't know. I think it was that the officer was there, and he didn't, Case didn't get over and give right. him any space. So he. Right. You know, he pulled him over for that. He was very polite, and he was trying to, you know, play the political card and whatnot. Yeah. So that's a case that shows, hey, the officer is right. Yeah. And in a lot of these shootings, yeah, there is a situation where the officer is right, and there is a lot of this violence, and they need to protect right. themselves, and somebody's shooting at them. Of course, I'm all for shooting back. But then we look at a situation like in Cleveland, and mm-hmm. I, I forget the kid's name. But it was mm-hmm. a 12-year-old that had the BB gun mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that was walking around. And I heard the story and it seemed right. like, okay, yeah, if there was a, a threat. But then when I saw that video, it's mm-hmm. like the kids walking around like a little kid shooting the ground. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, okay. And that car just pulls up in the grass. The guy jumps out and just and just, just shoots him in an instant. I, I mean, what that situation to me seems like, yeah, that's that's... I mean, I think that could have been prevented. I mean, if you yeah. observe the situation. So, I mean, and of course, then I think with social media, the general public, I guess enough of these things happen where people right. say, oh, yeah, this, this is this is horrible, which it is. And then it starts to get, I think we're a little bipolar in this country where, where there's no, there's there's none of that, that gray matter. It's in being in our brains thinking and just that, that gray area where it's just like, okay, let's look at the evidence mm-hmm. and make a decision. It's just jump to, oh, hey, this. I mean, wh- how would you have handled that situation in Cleveland? Well, I, I think because uh, going back to the fact that, you know, I started in police work in, uh, back in 1973, um, uh, we, we didn't have those kind of situations. And I think it was... The last thing, the last result uh, for anything, any kind of action on our part, was to pull a trigger, because the consequences are so severe that they're irretrievable. You, you know, I mean, taking, you know, any bravado or any locker room nonsense you'd have from anybody, 
uh, is is absurd because taking someone's life is something that you can't give back to. So it's the final thing you do. So I think, <coughs> excuse me, back in my generation, nobody did that because we understood what the ramifications were. And I think that another problem is that people are, we're seeing so many shootings that people are, have high anxiety. And that might account for why police officers are a little bit quick on the trigger because they're thinking, hey, all these other police officers are getting killed all across the nation. It ain't going to be me. That might account for some of that. Could be a lot, a lot of anxiety. So I think you coupled with the fact that uh, we've had all these mass shootings in this country. Um, and police officers are getting shot with a uh, greater frequency than ever before. Uh, I think you put all these different things into view. Uh, I don't think anything makes it justifiable, but it makes it probably more explainable. Definitely. It just sheds shed some, some different light on it. and Yeah, it's just it's a shame to see some of the situations, and I don't know if certain certain times it could be a power issue mm -hmm. i mean we see the lady that and of course i'm just blanking on names mm -hmm. but there was a lady down in texas mm -hmm. was she being rude yes mm -hmm. she she was pulled over somewhat mm -hmm. the way the way i saw it was being profiled um you know he was he was following her did she not use her signal yes that's right. kind of what he put it out and then um and then of course she's smoking in the car being kind of rude which I don't think there's any law against that, but you know it was just one of these things, and then she wasn't complying, and then she mm -hmm. started getting ruder, and it escalated, mm -hmm. and then you know she winds up being dead in jail. We look at that, and that's a situation where I think, yeah, granted, you know that sucks. I'm never, you know, I'm I'm very polite when I, you know, if I ever get pulled over right. at and it's night, you know, I turn on my dome light. I you roll the window down. I put a hand outside the car. I have the other hand on my steering wheel because I, I understand that you don't when you pull someone over that you don't know what to expect. Right. So hopefully there's a sense of ease there. Um, and I've done that and been polite. And I've I've had officers in certain areas, of course, St. In St. Louis, we have these municipalities. Some of them they're just you know the ticket writing mm -hmm. places mm -hmm. and, and Pine Lawn is. True. Horrible for that. So off the highway, mm -hmm. you know, I'm driving. I don't see a good place to pull over. So I have my signal on. I'm driving slow looking for a spot. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, this guy is just, just a total ass. And just, why did you pull over? When I, I said, you know, honestly, I didn't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel there was a spot and feel comfortable. So, you know, I was looking for that spot. And, you know, his... His rebuttal was, well, if I'm behind you, then, you know, it's safe or you're, you know, you should be comfortable mm -hmm. or something like that. It's like, yeah, I don't. And at the time, I just bought a vehicle and uh, didn't have the license plate bracket on the front. I, so I had it in my, my dashboard. Mm -hmm. And that's the only re reason he knew right. that I didn't have a license plate on the front of my car because I displayed it. Right. And it was, you know, one of these deals where, hey, there's a chance to get more money for Pine Lawn. and. He's like, hey, why is this up here? I don't have a bracket on there. Well, you put it on the front. Like, dude, I, I know this. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You have those situations where even when you do the right things and it's trying to not, you know, I, I think at that point I was a little, you could tell I was agitated and I probably wasn't as, as respectful at that point. But I could see if somebody gets pulled over time and time again. Well, then also. Yeah, then it. 
kind play of play devil's advocate, yeah. Ken. So the police officer encounters all kinds of negative resistance all throughout his day. Yeah. And that also changes him. Of course. So that puts him on the offensive. Yeah. Or the defensive. It could be go either either way. He's not in a good mood. He's yeah. pissed off. People are kind of giving him, you know, a head full of you know what. And so he's coming on a little strong with you. Yeah. And so you might be, you know, really cool and mellow. But, you know, he maybe he's dealing in, in an environment with other people where he's got confrontations all the time. And being human being, he just he's just sick and tired of it. So he doesn't want to listen to it. He doesn't care. And so the process of being a police officer in that respect, it changes you. Okay. It changes you into something that you maybe weren't before you became a police officer. Because you have to think about the nature of the uh, of the job, you're bombarded with negativity all the time. True, right? They yeah. don't they don't send you on a call to go have a lunch with a family or to go and go to a picnic. They call you because everything is going afoul. They, you're the repairman. You're the counselor. You're the referee. You're the guy that's got to take the situation and make it okay, resolve everything, right? So if you're hit with negativity all the time, yeah. it gets into your subconscious, and I think it changes you. You have to learn. I would agree with that. Yeah, you know, and you have to learn how to fight that and combat that because if not, it's sort of a monster. It will overpower you, and it will it will create nothing but negativity. And then you think, as a policeman, that the whole world hates me. Uh, that's me against them, and. Uh, uh, I, I saw that in the early stages of, of my career, and I made sure that what I did, uh, that I tried to become more well-rounded in my activities and my group of friends, because if you become too isolated, too singular in that, you do develop a mentality that, you know, uh, it is me against them. You know, the, the public are the enemy, and... Uh, you know, I have to battle them all the time. So you have to temper it if you recognize that, you know, there's, there's, you could, you could go down a rocky road. Yeah. So rather than become too cynical, and you do see a lot of police officers that become too cynical. So, yeah, I can see how easy it would be to get cynical in, in a situation like that and just, yeah, kind of, kind of get it, that bad taste in your mouth, get the, this, just kind of, I guess maybe buy into or that negativity just kind of becoming, you know, just seeping into the fabric of your psyche. Well, you lose, you have to be careful because you can lose faith in mankind because you see so many ter- terrible things that most people don't ever experience in their life, you know. I mean, cases where you have a, a boyfriend uh, sexually, you know, molest a four-year-old little girl. Yeah. Or take an eighteen-year-old child in a in a play crib and sling her around like a rag doll. Like an eighteen-month, yeah. I mean, it's just inhuman yeah. things that you experience, and so it, it does make you uh, it, it does make you try to figure out, you know, is this the nature of man? I mean, are we all this screwed up? So it's something you have to deal with, and some people cope with it in their own way. Um, my way was to have a lot of outside interest. Because it seemed to balance things out. But then again, I think maybe that's because of my martial arts background that I believe that everything should be in balance anyway. I don't think it's too much. 
uh, good to say about people who just do one singular thing or have one singular thought, whether it would be a, um, a religious person or uh, even a physician or anything uh, like that. Too much of a good thing, I think, is too much of a good thing. You got to have balance. You have to have things that, and I think I think that in nature. I think that balance is extremely important. You wouldn't want to be hot all the time. You certainly want to be cold all the time. So I think a good blend, the middle road, is probably a good way to do it. And my way of coping with uh, my job is because I did have outside interests. And I wasn't. I didn't want to be identified by being one singular thing, and that's being a policeman. Uh, I, I was kind of like a, the little Russian... The little Russian doll, where you have one doll inside the other. Not the nesting doll. Yeah. Uh huh. And so I was. Uh, and in fact, my Eastern European friends would tell me that this is uh, uh, that I'm I'm a doll within a doll within a doll because uh, I practice herbology, I practice martial arts, uh, I listen to classical music, I do all these things that are really don't fit the bill for a lot of police officers. So my way of dealing and living in my own skin was to have a lot of outside interests and uh, made me a little bit more, well, I don't know, exposed to new ideals and new places and new people. I mean, some cops, they just hang out with other cops and that's because it's a security blanket because they feel comfortable just being around their own kind. So I didn't go down that road and I'm glad I didn't. You know, it opened my eyes. It put me in position though, uh, the where I can look at police work after 41 years and I think I've earned the right to be a little bit more critical than other people because I can be critical of my own people um, and it puts me I guess in a different I don't know what would you say a, um, a judgment status because I can sit there and because I was one of them I can tell you what I think uh, I will make this statement to people that uh, the good cops out there uh, the good ones are really, really good. Are there a bunch of guys who are real jerks? Well, yeah, of course. There's guys out there I wouldn't want to go to a dog fight with. Um, don't hang out with them. I didn't care for you know, the way they were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was lucky to recognize it in the very beginning and make sure I didn't fall into that trap. And one police story where you combine herbology with, I love this story you were telling me at lunch, where you had a deer that was in a subdivision and it was, I guess, in the middle of the road. What did you do to, I think this is a wonderful story, combining those interests to, to do your job? That's a positive note. We'll end Absolutely. on somewhat of a positive note and talk a little more about martial arts, but this is... Yeah, my uh, we received a call of a, of a baby deer in the, in the street in a subdivision out here in West County. So... Uh, for those who don't know this, little baby deer, when the, their mom gets scared and has to run off or whatever, the baby deer will usually roll up into a little ball to make itself look smaller and kind of in a protective thing. So, uh, and, and when in this particular case, it's in the middle of the road and people in the subdivision don't know what to do, they call the police. So I got out and I, I looked at the little baby and uh, just a tiny little thing and she didn't seem to be hurt. So knowing what I know about cayenne pepper, I always keep a bottle of cayenne pepper with me wherever I go, whether I travel, at work, in my car, even now as we speak. And so I knew that 
cayenne can bring even an animal out of shock if you just put a few drops in your mouth. So I go up to the baby deer and, and uh, I put a couple drops in, in her mouth. And she stood up with all fours and bleated like a little lamb and headed straight to the, to the bushes where I wanted to put her so that her mom could come back and find her. Uh, so all the, all the people are looking at me and are thinking, what the heck did this crazy cop just do? How, did he say some kind of special words or whatever, you know? And even the other police officer who was with me goes, what did you do, should I ask? And uh, I said, ah, yeah, John, I'll just put a few drops of cayenne. So these people came up and approached me, and they go, oh, it's an old Indian trick that I learned a long time ago. You know, I can communicate with these animals. <laughs> so I've done that on, on several occasions. It yeah, works, yeah. If, if only every every call was as easy as yeah. that one. But that's good ending. Uh, sure, of, absolutely. Life, so. so with the martial arts, real quick, yeah. we'll, we'll just end on that. Sure. Because what, what fascinates me is always you're showing me little wouldn't say tricks, but you can just, yeah. just stand there and hold your arm as fierce as possible and whatever. And then, and just, you yeah. know, just, you can take people and just the, just the inertia or just the different pressure points, mm -hmm. how it, even the strongest person, not saying that's me, but I'm working <laughs> on it, but how you can just with the, I guess, is it physics or using that, you know, anatomy? Yeah. It, it's amazing. What do you, you know, how do you, how do you describe that and, and, and how long did it take you to get to that point where you could use that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'll be 68 this year and I, I started learning martial arts when I was about 14 or 15 and really got into it real heavy duty when I was about 19 uh, and I've stayed with it ever since and trained and trained with different people uh, and, and different uh, martial arts disciplines and uh, uh, uh many different types of training methods, resistance training. Um, I, I think after all the years, you become sort of a, a master of the human body in terms of finally being able to blend your mind, body, and spirit as, into one entity and to be able to, to do some interesting things. Uh, so some of it's, some of it's physical, some of it's, uh, it's a mental thing. Uh, it's a lot of focusing. And it's knowing how the body works. And after all those years and having the experience of dealing with people uh, on different levels, you pretty much can pull off some things that kind of surprise people. Then there's different types of strength in this world. You know, we're born with a certain strength. There's a trained strength. There's emotional strength. There's psychic strength. Uh, we all have different strengths, and so you tap into certain ones, and uh, you're able to uh, to do some things that people think are, are pretty interesting. And have those skills ever in the police work, uh, has it been a, a situation where knowing martial arts allowed you to defuse a situation without you know any kind of violence or saved your life? Yeah, it has. I, I have had to use it on, on a number of occasions. And so, uh, you know, the thing is... Do I have the ability, and, and this is not, <clears throat> and I hope this comes across okay to everybody, but do I have the ability to kill people? Yeah, I'd probably say I do. I, it's nothing pleasant to say, but I mean, I, I could do that. So I've trained my hands, you know, to a high level. And even before my passing of my teacher, he says, be careful because your, your hands are extremely dangerous. So knowing that I, I temper how I use my hands and with people, 
and I tried to show restraint and compassion. Could I abuse that power and really hurt people and cripple them? Yeah, I can. But that's not that's not the whole foundation of martial arts. The, the main premise with martial arts training is really to learn to conquer yourself because you yourself are your own worst enemy. And so by conquering yourself, you uh, learn to get over your fears. Um, you learn to develop more respect for yourself and other people. And as a result of that, you reach a certain level where you don't need to go out and prove anything to anybody because you've already proven it to yourself. So you become secure with who you are. Um, you don't need to show that you're a tough guy or whatever. And you just develop a whole whole attitude. Yeah, that's good. And it's good words of wisdom. And I think on that note, that's something that everyone can take away and just whether you be a martial artist right. or whether it be in filmmaking or whatever, mm-hmm. just, just, yeah, having that, I guess, self-validation and, mm-hmm. you know, having it all come from within. I know I'm working on that and I really appreciate uh, the mentorship with the herbology and your friendship and everything else. And it's been, it's been an absolute honor and privilege to sit and talk with you and be able to share this out there with, with everyone else in the world. I think that when you have these encounters, they are a joint experience because no matter who you are and what you know, you can always learn something from somebody. And that means that you always keep your mind open for new things and new ideals. Well, fantastic. I can't thank you enough, Alan. Oh, my pleasure.